Welcome to Present Value. Hello, everyone. My name is Taylor Davis. I am a second year student and the president of the Black Graduate Business Association this year. And I'm Roxana Moreno, also second year at Johnson and the president of the Hispanic American Business Leaders Association, better known as ABLA. For many of us, the last several months have been filled with immense pain and sadness as we have witnessed the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and countless others. We continue to grapple with the consequences of the ongoing systemic violence against Black people in the United States, most recently that against Jacob Blake. Earlier this summer, BGBA issued a call to action to the Johnson community and administration. We have been proud of the changes that have been made so far and are eager to see how the Johnson community will continue to improve. One of the changes we are particularly excited about is Dr. Michelle Dugat's appointment to Associate Dean of Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging. That's why we're both so excited to introduce this episode and reaffirm the need for action at Cornell and in the Johnson community. During the conversation, Dean Duguid discusses her academic research on the impact of diversity on group performance, as well as its intersection with status, influence, and power in organizations. The episode ends with a conversation around her vision for change within the college and the importance of fostering allyship to achieve true and lasting progress there is more work to be done. We need to increase URM representation in the MBA class, have more conversations about race and diversity in the classroom and in recruiting, and continue to educate each other on the harm of microaggressions toward our black classmates. We know the Johnson community to be proactive, passionate, and neighborly. We are students who never back down from a challenge or speaking up for what is right. Echoing Taylor's sentiments, I would like to commend my fellow Black peers for leading discussions with the administration to create change on campus despite a time of immense grief and anger. This past month, Abla has been celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month, which runs from September 15th through October 15th, as an opportunity to recognize and celebrate our heritage. In celebrating, we have also recognized it as a moment to reflect and discuss ways in which we can all be better allies inside and outside of our communities. As members of the Latinx community, we're not made up of a monolithic race, but many times fail to recognize the racial biases that exist within our own spaces. Therefore, to create lasting change, we also need to recognize our biases and be an active part of the change through participating in dialogue inside and outside of our respective homes to drive more equitable experiences at corporate America and society at large. As we continue to learn more about allyship, we would like to thank those who have amplified our voices thus far and challenged the entire Johnson community to stand with us moving forward. In the words of Angela Davis, it is not enough to be quietly non-racist. Now is the time to be vocally anti-racist. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm your host, Maria Castex. Michelle Dugid is Associate Dean of Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging, and an Associate Professor of Management and Organizations at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. Dean Dugid received her MS and PhD in Organizational Behavior from Cornell, and her primary area of research investigates the interplay of social status, power, politics, influence, and diversity in organizations. She also does research which examines individual and group processes that affect creativity and decision-making. Dean Dugit serves on the editorial board of several publications, and her work has been published in numerous academic journals. 
Her research has also been cited in media outlets such as Forbes, The New Yorker, NPR, The New York Times, and The Economist. Dean Duguid, thank you so much for joining us on Present Value. Thanks for having me, Maria. To start off, I wanted to talk about the part of your research that focuses on how diversity impacts group processes and performance. One study looked at diversity from an information processing perspective, suggesting that heterogeneous groups perform better. This is a familiar notion cited in favor of increasing diversity in organizations, but I'd love to hear more about the specific effects you found diversity to have on group performance. So that article is actually a review article of a lot of work in this area. And one of the biggest takeaways is that, yes, everyone's heard this idea that diversity increases performance in a lot of different areas in groups. And the assumption that most people make for that outcome is that this quote-unquote diverse person is coming in and bringing all of these new ideas and different ways of thinking. But what we found is, yes, that absolutely happens. But also we know from a lot of research that majority members also are more creative, share more ideas. So it seems to make the entire group smarter, more creative, and do better. And not only do we look at groups, you know, in typical organizations, you know, we're in a business school, but they've also looked at work with jurors, like those are groups and they show through transcripts and so on that when there's a person who is different, diverse, that there'll be more facts shown. People will spend longer times deliberating. And like I said, it's not only the diverse person, but other people will bring up, those are some of the people bringing up those that new information, more accurate information. So it seems to affect everyone's thinking and cognitive ability. Not It's not just this diverse person bringing in ideas. Interesting. And I guess I'm curious, like, have you found there to be any differences in, in this kind of performance effect depending on the kind of diversity within the groups, thinking about things like gender versus race and ethnicity? That is a great question. Unfortunately, so they've done a lot of work with gender. They've done some work with race, less with LGBTQ. There's this assumption that these effects will be similar across. We think that the minority member, whether it be gender, race, sexual orientation, able-bodiedness, all of these things should have similar effects. But There is not a lot of research um, in certain areas Uh, in terms of disabilities and so on. That's not nearly researched as much. There's definitely a gap there. And we're now starting to do more on the LGBTQ plus community. There's less on race. And then, you know, there's intersectionality. And what does that mean as well? And so we're really trying to get more research in this area in terms of intersectionality. I mean, just for women and minorities, you know, that internet sectionality, there's very little work done. I mean, one of the few studies, but we know that there are some differences. You know, we know this research that uh, women, if they violate expectations of being nice, of being, you know, not angry and so on, they get backlash, right? Because people, you know, you're supposed to be nice. And if you're not, then people don't like you as much and so on and so forth. Well, that affects, we know, for women, but it's actually 
not as bad for black women as it is for white women. And those were the two categories they looked at because people have this expectation, the stereotype of the angry black woman. And so they weren't violating stereotypes nearly as much as their white female colleagues. And whenever I talk about this research, although it did not involve an Asian woman sample or a Latina, you know, a Latinx woman sample, they have opinions about how it would go. So whenever I talk about it, if there's ever an Asian woman, she's like, oh my goodness. She was like, I bet you we would be punished the most because there are these stereotypes that Asian women are quiet and demure. And so women who see themselves quite assertive, they say they receive a lot of backlash. And for them, this research seems to explain that. But even with that intersectionality, it was just based on white women and black women. And so it just says that we need more work because there are some fine-grained differences that we would love to capture that we're still trying to work on. I think this is super interesting. I want to put a pin on it quickly to ask you about something else in reference to the idea of, of like operating within diverse groups, but I'm really interested in, in the in the concept of stereotyping and I, I want to kind of come back to it later on. In terms of the research that you have done or colleagues have done in regards to group performance and the improvement on group performance through diversity, are there specific barriers or challenges that diverse groups might face that might hold them back from leveraging or tapping into some of the advantages that we discussed in terms of improved performance? So another area of research of mine is status and power. And this is uh, one of the things that people get into where people move from talking about diversity to inclusion and belonging. Having representation, I think sometimes people just like, just having representation, of course, this is what's going to get me those great new ideas. I bring in these people, this one woman or this minority, and they're going to help us think differently. But at that individual does not have the space or doesn't feel comfortable or think that they can contribute or if they contribute and people aren't responsive or, you know, there's this common theme that it was made popular, but I think every woman, when I, when I talk about it, it's a group of women, 90% of women will raise their hand and say it's happened to them, but it was made popular by women in the Obama administration. They were like, I think it was in the New York Times. They said, you know, we would try to amplify each other's voices because what would often happen is a woman would say an idea and people would kind of gloss over it. And not too much longer after that, one of their male colleagues would say exactly the same thing and people would latch onto it. When I talk about this, most women nod and like, oh my goodness, that's happened to me. So if that's happening, you can understand how that dampens the effect of that person who can contribute and share ideas. And if they don't feel, and some people don't feel comfortable contributing to begin with. They don't feel as though they have a seat at the table. The status of that person is impacting. It's too highly correlated with their minority status. Then you're not going to get those effects of people contributing and so on. Got it. And does this relate at all to the work that you've done in looking at how introducing political correctness in heterogeneous or homogeneous groups kind of changes the dynamics of, of group performance? Yeah. So that particular paper, what we decided to look at, because 
at that point when we did this research and still now, you know, there's buzzword of political correctness and, and, and people usually think of it, especially in terms of creativity is a negative, right? Usually when we think of creativity, you want the most creative environments, you know, censorship when you're brainstorming, it's supposed to be a free flow of ideas, no judgment, that kind of thing. And one of the things we were talking about when we were just, I think we like most research when I'm with my co-authors, it's usually over a drink or something. We're like, you know, we start off talking about political correctness. And we're like, you know, but for creativity, that should be the case. But what if it's a mixed group? Then, you know, and we know that people are uncomfortable if you're in the minority. What happens there? Would it be that if we had norms, some ground rules that people feel respected, that there's this atmosphere of, you know, maybe we set some ground rules. And we found that when there was this these ground rules set of being politically correct, people were more open to sharing ideas, even more controversial ideas, just having those ground rules set at the beginning. So it shows that, you know, there's some norms that can be put into place in organization, cultures that can be put into place that can actually, hopefully, circumvent some of these negative things that can happen in groups where people may feel stifled because of their minority status. And a lot of companies, particularly in maybe the last five to 10 years, have kind of gone about navigating some of the complexities that you just mentioned of increasing diversity in their in their teams through implicit bias training. And this is where I kind of wanted to come back to what you were talking about earlier with, with stereotyping. I've personally received this training in many of the organizations I've been a part of professionally, including Johnson. And you've done some research on on stereotyping, which found that increasing the awareness of the prevalence of stereotyping actually creates a norm for stereotyping. So I'm interested, you know, how does this kind of relate to other parts of, of your body of work? And then how might this impact the efficacy of organizations' approach to DNI and implicit bias training? So in the past, how we thought about people who stereotyped. It was, you know, if you stereotype, if you use bias in terms of hiring and you're a terrible person, very bad, it shows that you are a bigot. So, and so people became very defensive, right? You don't want to take a second look. You don't want to come across. If someone points it out, you are like, wait a minute, what are you trying to say about me? And then there was the implicit association test that gained a lot of popularity. And we found that through the implicit association test that we stereotype all the time, all of us. And people stereotype against their own groups, unbeknownst to them. It's implicit because it's below our consciousness, right? It's basically a reaction time test. And with that, organizations for good reason, I think, grabbed on this because clearly what was happening in the past with blaming wasn't working. And they saw this as a way to say, you know, we all stereotype. And because we all stereotype, then we should be open, open to taking a second look, checking ourselves. And also, if someone else checks us, it's not an insult to us by saying we're a bigot. It's we all do this. I do this. You do this. So if I ask you to take a second look, I'm not trying to shame you. You know, we all have these unconscious biases and all we need to do is try to correct them. And I think that's great. But there are two issues. A there hasn't been any research data that shows that by having these trainings, 
we're having positive effects. And what my research shows, because we also know, in addition to the fact that, you know, we have these biases, there's another body of research which shows that there are norms. We follow what other people do. We call it consensus or social proof. We follow social norms. And by saying that everyone stereotypes, we all have these stereotypes, or the vast majority of people, because it's not everyone in some cases, is the vast majority of people stereotype. It actually creates a norm for stereotyping. People don't feel the need to put checks and balances as much. So when we gave people that message, it didn't decrease their stereotyping. By telling them that few people stereotyped, it actually did. Once again, that's the social norms research. That would be the prediction and that's what happened. But with the advent of the IAT and its popularity, it's difficult to tell people that message. It's not an authentic message, I think, because we know that a lot of people, we we stereotype. So we decided to give people another message which is the vast majority of people put effort into not stereotyping, which we thought was a realistic message. Because even if you are a bigot, you do still, in a usually in a professional context, still people put effort. So we thought that that was a realistic message. I, I, I do believe, I want to, maybe I'm too optimistic, I do believe the vast majority of people actually do. But even if, like I said, you have different views about diversity, I still think that most people try to be, well, here we go, politically correct, and they try to put effort into not stereotyping. And when we gave people that message, it was actually much more useful than just saying the vast majority of people stereotype. It's one of those situations where maybe some of the things we're trying to do may not have the the effects that, or maybe have some unintended consequences, frankly, than what we are expecting. I do believe it's useful to tell people about stereotyping and the fact that we have these stereotypes, but I think we may need to go a little further than that as well. Now, shifting focus a little bit to something you quickly mentioned in one of your previous answers about your research in the space of status and power and influence and looking at the interplay of those three forces in organizations. So before we dive into this topic further, could you define these three terms for our listeners? So status is, we define that as the respect and influence that an individual has, or it can be an entity, an organization. Right now we're talking at the individual level. And power, we think of that as uh, resources that, and like I said, I'll say individual, resources that an individual has that others want and need. Often these things are highly correlated, especially in organizations. People tend to have positions of power, they have resources that people want and need, and because of that, people respect them. But you can imagine, this is where often in, especially in business schools, we talk about informal leadership, right? That there are people who may not have that formal power, but people respect, they have status, they have prestige, their colleagues look to them, And so these things can be disentangled. Like I said, they're highly correlated often, but not always. And so that's why we make this definitional difference because of that, because they're not proxies and they're not synonyms. So how might these three dynamics or or forces differ across groups? I'm thinking, you know, there's this common assumption that minorities will advocate for other minorities as, as potential work group peers, but 
some of the work that you've done has actually found that, particularly looking at, at women, we face some challenges in fulfilling the quote-unquote advocate role, and that decreases our propensity to support other women in the workplace. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about this and why this might be the case? So I tell people that often I do me search. And so it's either it's either things I've observed or that just like the phenomenon, like, yeah, we, we tell people about unconscious bias, you said they shouldn't do it, but that clashes with this norms research and, and that theory. And how do we reconcile these things? And for me, the whole idea about women supporting other women, often women are put on, or minorities are put on committees, hiring committees and so on. So, cause you know, they're seen as these, it'll be the catalyst. There'll be advocates for other women. They're going to be the ones to drive the other members of the group to take a second look and so on. But if that individual doesn't have the status in that group, that influence, that prestige, and so on, which, you know, when you're a minority person, that often isn't the case. If they don't have that, then actually they may see, especially if the person that they are bringing into the group is two things. If they are better than them, right, they will feel what we call a competitive threat. Now, this is an interesting thing because I think often reporters and the media will contact me and they because they've read a blurb about my paper and say, we want to talk about women sabotaging other women. And I will say, you have the wrong person because that is not what my research shows. So maybe someone else can help you, but I can't. What my research shows is when a woman feels secure, when she feels like she's a part of the group, when she feels like the other people in the group respect her opinion, she doesn't feel like they see her as a contributing member, she will advocate for another woman absolutely. It's when she feels that there is going to be competition because she's not respected in her group, that that's where that happens. And I tell people all the time, this is not a woman thing. It's not that women, because everyone seems to love a good cat fight. It is not that women are super competitive with one another. And this goes back to evolution where we were fighting for mates. No, anyone would be competitive. If you think that you have this role in a high status group, it happens in high status groups only. And it's a position you covet because it gives you status in the eyes of other people. But if you don't feel that you're experiencing that status in your group, your elbows are going to get sharp, whether you're a man, a woman, a Martian, right? Like it's not a woman thing. It's a people thing. But if women or minorities feel like they're a member of that group, those effects of being competitive go away. We also find that women also, they don't want a woman, if they don't, if they feel threatened, once again, that's the caveat, they don't want a woman who is doing way better than them, but they also don't want a woman who they don't think is qualified, right? Because that's going to look bad on them. And then another colleague of mine, I'm a, we have a paper together, it's a theory paper, but she's looked at it empirically. She also shows that another issue with women bringing other women on is when they feel like other people are going to assume their bias. 
So I may not want to bring you on, Marie, if I'm the only woman and your application comes up and I don't feel like my group values my opinion and they don't think, well, I'm going to choose Maria because of her competence. They're going to see me as someone, oh, I just want another woman in this group. And so I don't want to be seen as someone who is biased, who is not thinking of the group. I'm just trying to bring another woman in. That's also going to give me pause. But once again, all of these effects go away if that woman feels like she's valued by her group. Follow-up question to that for me would be, and perhaps, you know, there's no research that, that has kind of looked at this, but do you find that women's perception of whether they are a part of that group or they've achieved that status is accurate? Oh, that's a great question. I have not seen a lot of research. I do think women's perceptions are, well, let me tell you about, there is some research which does show, so it's not about women, it's about people in general, that we are pretty good judges of our own status. So there's research that shows that we, actually done by a Cornell professor in psych, which shows that we overestimate almost everything about ourselves. Everyone thinks they're above average in intelligence. We're above average in physical attractiveness. Everyone thinks that they're just smarter and hotter than they actually are. But the one thing we seem to be pretty good at is judging our own status. We are getting messages all the time about where people see us on that continuum. And people tend to be pretty accurate and act accordingly. So there's research that shows that versus specifically about women. But I have a feeling since they don't, they don't find gender effects, that in general, women are pretty good at picking up messages and not being overly sensitive about having less of a seat at the table. I think they know when they do and when they don't. This conversation has reminded me of my, my own experience recruiting for consulting last year. And I naturally gravitated toward other women. And as a result of that bias, I did almost all of my networking within that group. The question I have now is, is kind of a two-part question. I guess first is, was this a mistake? And the second is, is this conclusion to be drawn that women or other minority groups should intentionally focus their relationship building efforts on majority group members as well? So I say to everyone, men and women, you should have more than one sponsor. Let me step back a little bit. So mentorship and sponsorship are different. Mentorship, I say to people as a shorthand, is people you get the most value of a mentor is what they say to you, information that they give to you, right? And the value of a sponsor is what they say about you. So it's all those conversations that are happening usually also when you are not in the room. And I can't remember who said this, but they're like, most of the conversations, important conversations in your career are happening when you are not in the room. But that person's in that room and they are promoting you to people who are at their level. I mean, these sponsors tend to be at higher levels than their protégés. They are protecting you from getting drawn into things. We know from research that women get drawn into what we call office housework, you know, the planning the parties, taking the notes, all of those things, the serving on a million committees that the organization will say, thank you so much for doing this. But in your evaluation at the end of the year or at the end of the quarter, 
that gets mentioned, but it's not the first thing that gets mentioned, right? The glamour work is the stuff that gets mentioned. And so they protect you from getting sucked into things. They promote you. They tell you also to, yes, take that stretch assignment. And so we know for men and women, having sponsorship, mentorship, great, but sponsorship is impactful in your career. And I say have more than one because people leave the organization, things happen, and you should not put all of your eggs in one basket. Now, for women and minorities, the research is pretty clear on this, that women need men and minorities need majority members as their sponsors as well. It's great to have both. It's great to have other women, if it's a woman, who have, you know, they have shared experiences, there's something that you can relate to, those relationships may be easier to form, more organic, but you need to be purposeful because we know that there are more men at the top of organizations, eh, and they have more power and also status since we've started using that terminology and now we're com- so comfortable with it. And having th- those individuals as sponsors, when I talk to really successful women or minorities, I want to say 100% of them also have male sponsors or majority sponsors. They have both. So that would be my advice. And I think this is such a salient point because the way you were kind of describing a sponsor, it sounds like an ally that has a great deal of influence and status and power as opposed to the person that's kind of seeking the help or the, the guidance of, of that individual. And it reminds me of a panel discussion that, that you participated in titled How is Bias Affecting Your Organization? That was part of the Texas Conference for Women. Something that struck out to me from that conversation was the notion of, of accomplices. And it sounds like a lot of this is related. So I'd love to hear what does this notion of an accomplice mean and how does it relate to effective allyship? So an accomplice, this ties in nicely. So one of the things an accomplice, being an accomplice or allyship, this is kind of my new shtick. I really want to em- emphasize this to people. So, you know, earlier on I said, I think, Telling people about unconscious bias is very, very important. It's great to know that we need to take a second look, know that we have blind spots. In addition to unconscious biases, going on to say, okay, now that we know that stereotyping and biases is pretty widespread, in addition to you trying your best to correct, look at your you know, blind spots, also now moving further and becoming an ally or an accomplice, which means correcting other people, trying to address systemic racism and biases. So being more active versus trying to just recognize your own and self-correct. Because I think that is, in order for us to move forward, I think that is incredibly important. What we know is that it is more powerful for a majority member to have these conversations and be effective in terms of moving, calling people out in terms of their biases and dismantling systemic racism and and policies and so on than it is for minority members to do it. So not only is it not fair for women and minorities to try to dismantle these systems that may negatively affect them, 
but also it's not nearly as effective for them to do it. So it's the research shows that, you know, if a majority member calls out bias versus a minority member, it's much more effective for that majority member. So allyship, I think, is incredibly important to move these efforts and initiatives forward. It's incredibly important. Yet, despite there being this very clear and tangible impetus for, for diversity, contingents of the majority group, namely oftentimes white cisgendered males, remain reticent, if not sometimes diametrically opposed, to taking an active role as allies for their minority peers. Based on your work and your personal experience, what is holding them back? I think often, so once again, maybe I'm a very, I'm a little too optimistic. I think most people, I'm not naive to think that there are some people who are still not bigots and all of those things. But I think a lot of people see themselves as, well, frankly, I think they may see themselves as allies already, right? They, they think I am not biased. I try my best to correct my blind spots. But often they just aren't comfortable. They don't feel that they're prepared enough to engage in conversations. They don't feel comfortable enough to say things to other people. And I think that this idea of our identity around not coming off as biased or bigoted is just, well, fragile. I think there's a word that's being used. Not necessarily your privilege. You just don't want to come off in a bad way. You don't want to say the wrong thing. And I really think that we need to get over this in terms of allies. And, and when I, I mean, we can be allies for each other. We, we all have privileges, whether it be the schools we go to, whether, you know, although I'm, I'm a minority immigrant, first gen, you know, woman, I'm cisgendered and I'm able-bodied, right? We all have privileges. And so I can be an ally for someone as well. But for our majority colleagues who, you know, this comes up a lot, this idea of not wanting to engage because they don't want to offend often holds people back. What I like to say to people is that, they'll say, you know, I'm just scared of saying the wrong thing. And I say to them, that is a realistic fear because being an ally leaning in it's not a matter of if you are going to say the wrong thing it's a matter of when you're going to say the wrong thing and if you can let go of being afraid of saying the wrong thing then you can lean in and just prepare yourself to if you do saying i'm sorry not saying i'm sorry because you're too sensitive or you took that the wrong way, but I'm sorry, and I'm going to try to do better. And people will give you more grace if they know that this is a journey that you are going on. And even we are women, we can disagree. I can offend you on a way that I approach a quote-unquote gender-related issue based on how we approach it, or given our different life experiences, we may have different perspectives on what women, advice we would give to women, or how we would approach a problem, or expectations that women would have, right? And I may even need to apologize to you, far less someone who doesn't have that lived experience at all. But we could give credit for people being on a journey and willing to say sorry and move forward. We, we tell... I think every business school student has heard of the fact of having a growth mindset. And the re research relates to that, that if you think you're, you know, I'm not bigoted, your mindset is fixed, but this idea of 
it's constant improvement. I'm going to learn new things. I'm going to understand how different people within one group, which is not monolithic, think and what affects, what offends and what doesn't. And it'd be a journey and just having that growth mindset is important. And I think that's what is most effective for allies. I I love this. I could talk about this topic probably for for days, but I think this is a great point in in our conversation to shift gears and talk about your appointment as the college's associate dean for diversity, inclusion, and belonging, which was announced earlier in the summer. So some critics might say that words like diversity, inclusion, and belonging are nothing more than corporate buzzwords. I'm curious, what do each of these three words distinctly mean to you, and why is it necessary to have all three? So diversity is, I think of as representation, um, that we have representation of different groups. I think trying to work hard to definitely in terms of admissions for our students, recruitment for our faculty and staff, just increasing our numbers important. But that is absolutely not where we stop. This goes right back to what we talked about at the beginning. Just because there is a say from my a woman in a group doesn't mean that she feels comfortable sharing her opinion, right? And this is where the inclusion and belonging piece happens, that people feel like they can contribute and also feel like they can show up as their real self and actually be a part of this group, feel included, turn up how they are authentically and be a, feel a part of this group, this organization, this class whatever. And so for me, that is my goal. And and there are several ways to go about doing that. Several layers. We have three schools in our college. There's, you know, classroom, there's outside of class, there's a lot of different areas. We have a lot of, definitely a lot of words, like many organizations. But for me, if this truly is a strategy, and I think it is. I mean, it's a strength and it's a strategy to include, to have more inclusion and belonging and increase representation. Then like every good strategy, it needs to be woven throughout everything that we do. It needs to be woven in who we admit, how we admit. It needs to be woven in what's going on in our classrooms. It needs to be woven into our norms, our culture. It needs to be, all these things need to be congruent, like any good strategy. We would, you would learn in a strategy class and as a consultant, you would tell an organization, this is how we need to think about diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And how I have begun to nudge everyone to think about it, that it needs to be in all different parts, just how, like any strategy we have would be. That's how we need to think about diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And if we think about that, and it's top of mind with those decisions, because if that's our goal and our mission, then that should guide a lot of discussions and, and resources. Well, with this vision in mind, how are you approaching, perhaps more tactically, the process of creating lasting change within the College of Business? So I see it in every aspects. Right now, we just created a council and we're looking at different aspects. So one, I broke it down into committees. So one committee is focused on measurement and accountability. As a researcher, I live and die by data. And not only does data help guide us, frankly, it keeps us accountable. You know, 
diversity and inclusion and belonging right now it's top of mind for people but you know there's always something going on that's pulling out of our, our attention our resources and I, I don't only mean financial that's part of our attention our time and you know universities are reopening and there's people are going back to work and more than before we're trickling in there right but i want to make sure that this is top of mind and one way to do that is having data that's public and people can see so we can monitor how we're doing. Like I said, as a researcher, public data, it, it should be a guide and that should keep things top of mind. There's another committee which is on representation and retention. And that is often people think about it as only students, but I also, it's faculty and it's staff. And then there's a committee on curriculum and classroom. So, you know, we need to have, I mean, something just so simple, like we have strong recommendations about diversity in our panels. You know, maybe we have a formal policy that people should refer to where we have a diverse slate. You know, I'm based at Cornell Tech in New York City, and we know that there are not nearly as many, say, female high-level VCs, venture capitalists. You know, if you're having a panel with VCs, there should be a woman. And that woman should not only be there, unless she wants to be there, should not only be there to talk about maternity leaves and be and work-life balance, right? All the panel could speak on that. Now, if she wants to talk about that, but that should not be her only role if, if it is that those questions are being posed. So maybe there's a policy for that. I want us to think creatively about having more diversity, equity, inclusion in our classrooms. And then there's a committee on culture, engagement, and belonging, which is, you know, how do we increase more belonging, and that tends to be more related to the policies that we have. What can we look at and change so that people feel comfortable? And uh, when I first met with the group at, at large, I told them, so we've all, I think everyone has been that's on that's listening to your podcast, and I know for sure, the two of us, we've been on committees, councils, task force, where, especially when it's things that are important, there's a lot of discussion and data collection. We should get data on that. We should get a reading on that. And there's this cycle of discussion and data collection. And like I said, as a researcher, data collection, very, very important. But sometimes I think I look back on some of those committees, task force council, and I'm like, what did I just do? And so I told them very clearly that, you know, we are, even if it's a big goal, there needs to be small goals. There needs to be small wins. So what are your small wins to reach that big goal? We're going to set up timelines, check-ins. You're supposed to report back to the bigger group about what's been done, how to move forward. I want to be very task-oriented. And I believe that perfection is the killer of progress. And many of these things are advisory because like many organizations, universities are a bureaucracy. And so things need to be approved upwards. So let's just get things moving. Someone will take a look at it if we're suggesting a policy, but not having it be perfect that we need five other focus groups. When we have done enough research, we think what we're doing is right. We've taken examples and best practices from other people with wording or whatever, and just roll it up and keep moving along so that there's momentum. So those are the buckets that we plan to focus on to move these initiatives forward. And luckily, 
the deans of the schools are on board. And so we've already started to make a number of, of changes, which I think we're proud of. I mean, we have pronoun workshops. We have a compendium of business school cases with diverse protagonists and that have uh, DNI issues so that it's easy for faculty to bring them into class. So uh, just to name a few. So I think that we're heading in the right direction. So before we go, I want to return to the idea of allyship, a concern I've often heard and I echo around DNI initiatives within the organizations I have been a part of is that the burden of this work falls mostly on members of the marginalized group. In many professional spaces, such as consulting and financial services, where I personally have experienced this type of work isn't revenue driving. And as a result, can actually have a detrimental effect on the career progression of those devoting their time. So I'd love to end with your thoughts both in relation to your position, leading efforts within the college, and as an advisor to organizations that are likely struggling with this? This is a great question. Often it is, I think, women and minorities are tapped to push these initiatives. And there are a couple issues with this framing that organizations have. Once again, it goes back to, okay, you solve this problem, which is not effective. If it is that this is a priority for organizations and they do see this as a strategy that they, you know, they, they believe that this is something that will impact they do believe their organization, their constituents, that is who's in, outside, their customers, and so on, then everyone needs to be on board. Leadership needs to be on board and everyone else needs to be on board. And so leadership needs to drive these initiatives and not just the women, the minorities in the organization. So it already sets up the framing of the priorities of where it is for organizations, if it is that it's just being driven by people who are minorities, um, what, numerical minorities is what, I mean, is what I mean. So that's an issue. And also, it goes back to what we're talking about. If women are spending most of their time in this space, and like I said, it gets mentioned in their performance reviews, but it's not what is, like you said, that's more of a cost center kind of thing, like HR is, versus glamour work, the work that they should be doing, right? And so often it's cited as a reason why women aren't progressing. There's this article I read where a woman said that she was either mentored to death or that she was asked to mentor so much that it impacted her career, right? Because they're like, oh, you need help. We want to make sure that we're checking out the boxes that you... And she had like 10 mentors that she would have to check in with. And then when she... Other people are like, being a mentor, a formal mentor, there's so few women, there's so few minorities at the top. Then I have like all these mentees and intrinsically, you know, I'm interested in their development and well-being. But also, I also have a career and I can move up and help them as well. And you have to make decisions. But organizations shouldn't put this burden on people who, like I said, often don't have the status anyway in the organization. It needs to be, if this is important, everyone should be involved. So I hope that answered your question. Yeah, no, that was, that was great. That's all I have, Dean Duguid. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for your time and for joining us at Present Value. 
Thanks for having me. It was great talking to you, Maria. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Paul Whitko and Alexander Vorwald. I'm your host for this episode, Maria Castex. Music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kalachi Pamongo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.